Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this episode, we hear Rupert Howell, founder of award-winning ad agency HHCL and now Group Development Director at Trinity Mirror PLC, in conversation with Paul Pester, formerly of McKinsey & Co., Santander and Virgin Money, and now CEO of the TSB Bank. Listen as they discuss how they got to know each other, their biggest mistakes in business, digital transformation in media and banking, and which branch of the TSB is now the biggest. Paul, I was... um I was just remembering the first time we met, which was, um, it was a lunch in the city. We started talking about the transformation plan for the TSB, and you started talking a little bit about the values. And I remember my sort of calculating brain going, hang on a second, that sounds exactly like the sort of thing we're doing with Pride of Britain. And I took you to the Pride of Britain event that autumn, so that's three years ago, and um Halfway through the event, I remember you leaning over to me and saying, is the sponsorship available for this? And I said, well, funnily enough, it is. And you said, I've got to have it, which is not brilliant negotiating, but was really good news as far as I was concerned. I mean, what, I mean I've, I've always been fascinated. What was it that sort of suddenly just grabbed you about Pride of Britain and how that related to TSB? Um, well, so for me, the Pride of Britain is a fantastic way of celebrating ordinary people doing extraordinary things in communities right across the UK. And I think it's so easy to sort of forget that right at the grassroots, you know, it's um, this is a, a country spread, you know, right from the southern tip of Cornwall to the northern tip of Scotland. And there are people, you know, seven days a week doing just amazing things. And what you have done so well through Pride of Britain and Pride of Sport is to is to recognise that and to recognise the grassroots changes in local communities. And and you're right, I remember reaching across to you saying this is such a good fit with TSB. <laughs> uh, you know, what, as you know, what we've been trying to do with TSB is build a bank uh, back to the grassroots of banks, back to banks that serve the local communities they're part of, that help those local communities grow. And so the parallels between a business like TSB, where, where we are um, absolutely focused on those individual communities right across the UK and trying to help each of those individual communities, the link between that and uh, Pride of Britain and Pride of Sport was fantastic. So um, it was a very good match. And, and for us too, how did you engage the staff? How did you get them excited about it? I mean, you'd been to the big event, you'd seen it. They hadn't. So what was it about the notion that, that attracted the staff to it? Um, in, a, in a way, I think it's the, it is the localness, the fact that it is a local um, club, a local charity, you know, a local family that has done something and it's, it's in their grassroots. It means something to them. Um, to me, it goes right back to even the way we started TSB, as you know, TSB in its current uh, guise, we only uh, established it in 2013. Um, and it was, we had to carve it out of Lloyd's Banking Group. It was a it's complicated creation, but it was created as a consequence of the banking crisis uh, where Lloyd's received state aid. And then the European Competition Authority said, well, we need to break Lloyd's Banking Group in two and splinter off one bank called TSB and then the rest of it being Lloyd's. 
which sounds very easy, but of course it's more complicated. Uh, we were one-fifth of the whole, and Lloyd's four-fifths, so we were the smaller part. And how do you engage what was then nearly 9,000 employees to help them understand that in establishing and joining this new little spin-off thing, they are not the divested branches who are no longer part of the mothership, but actually they're part of something new and exciting. And so um, for me, bringing to Pride of Sport has been a part of that, in Pride of Britain, has been a part of that journey of trying to establish uh, TSB with its own identity, its, its own values, its own position, um, as a bank that serves local communities. In a way, you must see it in your own industry, Rupert. I mean, I'm amazed that an, an industry that is going through such disruption and such change. You know, I can remember when I first started work, catching the train and queuing up to pay £1.50 or £2 or whatever it would have been for my FT in the mornings. Um, now I jump on the tube of my City AM and it's all free. And how a business such as yours manages with that change in an industry is incredible. Well, the truth is that, of course, um, a lot of our industry hasn't managed it particularly well. And I think it's you have to take one step back when looking at the sort of publishing uh, industry in the UK. We are a massively oversupplied market. I mean, unlike any other country in the world, we have, you know, whatever it is, 10 or 11 national newspapers. I mean, most countries have one, if that. Um, you know, the US, you could argue... The New York Times is like a national newspaper, but they really don't have anything like that. So um, our industry is characterised by um, having too many competitors. Um, a lot of them are, in economic terms, what you'd call bad competitors. In other words, they don't have the profit motive. They don't have the same kind of constraints on them as a business, as a, as a public company has, or a standard business. So that's one issue. Also in, in our business, the sort of pace of change has been so frantic and it wasn't really precipitated by an economic crisis like the changes in banking but more by technological change and the presence of the BBC so if you look at any media market in the world it's different to the UK because of the presence of the BBC and the BBC is is brilliant in many ways but because it provides its services notionally free we all know there's a tax attached but People don't see it that way. And because it provides it free, um, the ability to put things behind the paywall are almost non-existent, unless you're somebody like the FT, because obviously the BBC don't cover financial news in that kind of depth or quality, so they can have a paywall. But if you are a, as it were, general news brand provider, you cannot charge for that because the BBC gives it for free. And that's why so many free products have emerged. And the very bold move, for example, by the Evening Standard to go from paid to free has paid off because they've you know, quadrupled or quintupled their circulation and reach. And through a combination of increased advertising, I mean, advertising in print is declining year on year, but their share of it has increased because their circulation has increased and judicious uh, use of things like events and so on, sort of sponsored by the standard, they've done well. And, th and that's the model we've pursued as well, which is to increase reach wherever we can, uh, try and monetize it, but then also use our brand and our audiences to create events, of which obviously the, the jewel in the crown is, is Pride of Britain. But I, I'm interested also in the digital challenges you face. As I said, our, our, our challenge was that the print business um, was being competed with by free digital news providers, 
led by the BBC. So we had to sort of switch very quickly to driving digital audiences rather than... I mean, we still defend our print audience because it's profitable, but, you know, it's no secret that that's declining at about 10% per annum in every print title in the land. So we have to grow our digital audiences and we have to find different ways of monetizing it. It seems to me, looking from the outside, that in the banking world the physical infrastructure is incredibly expensive and therefore the more you can get people to engage with you digitally, the better. But there seems to be still some sort of either reluctance to do that, or perhaps there isn't, I don't know. Is there reluctance to do that and, and where, where are those opportunities for you? So the world is, of course, the world's changing. You know, it's, um, everyone has one of these computers in their hand, though, a smartphone or whatever. So we are, you know, our busiest branch on a morning is the local bus going up the high street at eight o'clock in the morning. If we check when customers are checking their bank balances, making payments and making sure that the, you know, the wages have been paid, it's it's early morning. You know, you track by the minute who's using our mobile app. Um, you so can see it, it really kick up. And it peaks at early morning. It peaks early morning. You know, may die off a bit during the day, pick up a bit again after lunch, and then, you know, less in the evening. What we're seeing, and I'm sure it's very similar to what you've seen as you digitize the sort of news business, is that instead of maybe in your instance into someone reading the newspaper once in the morning and then it goes in the bin, um, people are delving in to the relationship much more frequently. So it's not uncommon to have individual customers, you know, using their app or accessing their app multiple times a day. Yeah. It's not the sort of thing you'd have sort of seen in the old world if there was an old world when customers only ever came into the branch or only ever telephoned us. So definitely changing customers and it makes perfect sense. I mean, that's the way I check my bank balance. Of course, I look at my app. Um, that said, it's, we're in an interesting space where um, customers also still really want that face-to-face -face assurance uh, that they can talk to somebody about their money. There's something, there's something sort of visceral about money. <laughs> Again, I'm trying to, if there, there may be an analogy with your industry, but those customers still want a physical presence. So, you know, I personally am not one of those who supports this sort of idea that all bank branches are going to disappear from all high streets sometime soon. Um, there are uh, certain uh, areas, you know, it's certainly the location of branches is changing. So the fact that our busiest branches are the, you know, the buses going up down the high street first thing in the morning, the customers on the trains commuting to work, sort of makes you realize you want to put your branches in, in transport hubs. Um, so that if someone's on the bus in the morning, someone's on the train, they've, a payment's not come through, they want to talk to you about something, you're more convenient for them. But I suppose there's a potential conflict isn't there between aggregation of branches into a transport hubs versus true localness which is part of your values how, how do you balance that it's it is a balance it's exactly a balance and there's a realization that any in some respects we're a retail business any retail business's retail footprint is never static or it should never be static i think one of the mistakes the big banks made is they sort of built these branch networks was how long ago, decades ago, and then assumed they were static. Um, you know, my life of working, you know, I worked a lot in management consultancy before working in a real business. Um, mm. And, you know, with the work we were doing then with some retailers was constantly about which locations are right, which locations are wrong. High streets can move. You know, mm. a local council can pedestrianize one street and suddenly the high streets move two blocks. If you're not willing to move your retail location, in our example, 
a branch, uh, then you're in the wrong place. And so uh, we, since we've been setting up TSB, are taking a much more dynamic approach to the way we're um, locking out our branches and moving our branches and realising that the branches are there as a showroom. They're there to give confidence to consumers that the money is safe with us and they're there as a sort of safety blanket of customers need to come and talk to us. They'll drop in. You, you may not know, but I was very closely involved in the launch of First Direct back in 1989 which was from uh, Midland Bank that then obviously yes. became HSBC. And I was involved when it was called Project Raincloud. It was the first telephone bank in Britain that had been one in Finland. And the thing that struck me, I remember, about the early research is you could talk to people in research groups for an hour and a half about this new product and service. And at the end of it, they'd still say, so can I meet my bank manager? <laughs> You'd say, no, no. <laughs> the whole point is you can't meet your bank manager, but you can talk to somebody 24-7 and they're just as knowledgeable and you won't have to queue. And and it's interesting that um, you discover that there are a proportion of the population who have never, ever met their bank manager and don't want to. And I guess they today would be like digital natives. And then there are people who still want that reassurance. Yeah, and again, yeah. getting that balance. It right is not is... as split as people think it is. So um, fascinating analysis. If you look at uh, customers who choose to open accounts with us digitally, um, and you look at their postcode, and then you plot that postcode against the location of our branches, you will get more customers opening accounts with us digitally and never coming into a branch if they live close to a branch. Now, so I'd, the branch is like an advert. Exactly. Now I'd seen this, you know, I'd seen it in other industries. I'd seen it in the travel industry, uh, where, you know, travel businesses who had travel agents on the high street would sell more digital sales to customers who were in the vicinity. Uh, but we are definitely seeing it in banking. It's only for TSB. And so consumers are more complicated in some respects than it's the simple stereotype never works. The, the other one that never works is where everyone always says to me, well, you know, young customers don't use branches and old customers use branches. That's not the case. You should always beware people who say young people don't do this or don't do that. From my previous existence at ITV, you know, I faced on a daily basis, young people don't watch television anymore. It is not true it is just simply not true and you have to be you know much more intelligent i think about how you look at your consumers i mean certainly in 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 our business um, if you look at the decline of newspaper sales, so as I said before, typically newspapers are declining in circulation, paid for circulation, about 10% a year. And everybody says, well, that's because old people are dying. It's not that at all. What's actually happening is the frequency of purchase is declining. Now, why is that, you might ask? There's a number of reasons. Far less people smoke, so far less people go to a newsagent or tobacconist every morning. More and more people don't work full five days commuting a week. They might work three, four days a week or do home working so they don't get to an, uh, an outlet. And obviously, they've got the alternative of online. So if you look at the data, I I'm, I'm always think you should look at the data. <laughs> and the data shows that our, our issue in the newsprint part of our business is frequency, actually, not reach per se. And in digital, it's almost the reverse problem because we've got universal reach. The challenge is to get frequency up as well. I suppose it's the same problem in a way. It's, it's about frequency. And then that's how you know, we build it. The more contacts we have with people, then the stronger our brands become. And that's, that's the challenge. How do you find interesting ways of people to come back to you many times a day? You must, I'm sure, you know, you consider yourself as a content business. And the content business, you know, the better your content is, you know, the more frequently you're going to get 
customers coming to you. That's true. We are in the content business, but we're also acutely aware that a lot of our content is not unique. Now, what you try and do is you try, obviously, to put your brand values on top of the raw content. And certainly in titles like The Mirror, we've got at least a a pretty clearly defined brand positioning, whereas some of our competitors are are slightly slightly more um, anodyne, if you like. We've got a very clear proposition for The Mirror and for a lot of our local titles. But it's, it's basically how you take general content and make it appropriate for your audience, as well as developing unique content yourself. So obviously the next challenge you face is the whole sort of open banking movement and, and the challenge, more challenges to your sector. You know, we've got all sorts of um, talk at the moment about extra regulation coming into the uh, print business. Personally, I think it'll get rejected in the House of Commons, but you may have read the House of Lords voted uh, to proceed with Leveson too, which would be a disaster for my industry. Um, what kind of uh, new regulatory challenges let's call it are you facing and and how are you dealing with that um well interesting enough we don't see them as challenges um we see them as opportunities so you know part of the mantra in establishing tsb is that we have a cause we have a purpose our purpose is to bring more competition to uk banking and ultimately make banking better for all uk consumers um, and i'm deeply of the view that uh if you really want people to uh, engage in the jobs they do and to be effective at what they do they have to believe they're doing something other than paying a mortgage off and earning a salary yeah. so this purpose about us being there to create more competition is key especially when 85 percent of the market is controlled by five big banks um, so what is happening in the banking industry? Well, I think at last we may actually start seeing the effects of digitization. There are some new rules, some new regulations coming from Europe and actually being adopted in the UK first, which enables bank customers to ask their banks to share the banking data with other companies. Yep. So some people call it open banking. And what it really means is that I as a customer can go to my TSB or what other bank I may have, Barclays, Lloyds, et cetera, and say all my transaction data, all my payments, all that stuff, I want you to share that data with whoever. The rationale behind it is that by getting access to the data, there will be new competitors that will come into banking and develop new propositions for for customers. So uh, we at TSB are a big supporter of it, which may seem strange since we are a bank. Uh, but you know we're a bank of around five million customers, um, and there's sixty odd million people in the UK, and we'd love to serve all of them. Yeah. And uh, if we can't get them all to come and move their account to us, then this is another way, another front for us to open up. So thinking again, when you think of digitization of banking. Many individuals and commentators say banking's gone through a digital revolution. You know, it really hasn't. TSB was founded over 200 years ago by a local vicar up in Scotland. I bet if you showed him the basis of what we do today, he'd recognise it. I don't think, as an industry, banking has really taken that data and started adding value to it in a way that really helps customers manage their money. Open banking has the potential to enable banks like TSB to to get that data for a customer and help a customer manage their money better. But it also enables some of the big tech companies potentially, who is who are very good at this data manipulation and, and helping customers sort their lives out, to integrate bank data into what they do. So, you know, potentially we're on the cusp of a really interesting period for banking. Do you think um, people are fearful 
of financial data sort of being out there in the open. I'm, I'm speaking purely personally here. There's a lot of my data that I, I couldn't give a monkey's who has it. But there's certainly bits of my financial data I'd be very nervous about sort of being out in the cloud or whatever. Is, is that yeah, going to be a real right. challenge? I mean, and whilst I've sort of described open banking, the benefits of open banking, how it may bring more competition, we're far from, we're far from really nailing this frankly, it's an industry and it's a bunch of regulators. So at the moment, you know, if the bank does something with your data and somehow you lose money um, through a payment or you, you know, a debit card transaction goes through that you didn't authorize, we will put the money back in your account within the day. Um, what happens when the data actually sits with somebody else no. now that a customer has asked, asked the bank to pass the data to? And that, that th- you know, third-party organization, because it doesn't have the cybersecurity that we'd all expect, loses the data and ends up with a financial loss to the customer. Who covers that? That is, I have to say, that is a part of the regulation which is staggeringly, I don't think we have complete clarity on yet. You know, regulators should create a uh, an open playing field to enable competition and companies to compete. But in order to do that, they have to be clear on the rules. And I think this particular aspect around open banking is yet to be really clarified. In, until it is, um, customers, I don't think, are going to trust for all the reasons you said, passing their data to to other third parties. Customers may not like banks in many respects, and the industry has caused all sorts of issues. Uh, but the you know banks have a 200, 300 history of looking after valuable stuff. Um, that valuable stuff you know used to be chunks of gold, maybe. Then used to be your family valuables you put in the vault, and now it's data. Uh, we need those other third-party companies in open banking to be able to do the same. So I think that's... It's, if anything prevents this um, transformation in banking, it may be that. I know, probably like me, Rupert, you think that actually in life it's those things go wrong that you really learn from. So um, what, would you, what would be your best oh. example of where did it all go wrong but you've learned a lot? So many times. <laughs> I must be so knowledgeable nowadays. I mean, a good recent example would probably be um, at Trinity Mirror launching New Day, the newspaper New Day, which... I mean, was a really brave attempt to try and fill a, a place in the uh, or a space in the marketplace that we felt, from all our analysis, was um, underserved, which was uh, a, a more female-biased uh, daily paper and a slightly more positive outlook in terms of not not just all happy clappy good news but trying to look for for positives and everything and i suppose uh, the first learning from uh, the fact that it didn't it didn't go uh, as we hoped was uh, never to believe research <laughs> Um, I built an advertising career on refusing to believe research and almost every famous campaign in the history of advertising has failed in parts of research. Uh, People were so enthusiastic about it in research, even when you went down to how much would they pay for it, they were sort of saying ridiculous numbers that were more than we'd ever charge for it. And we got seduced by that, which is always very dangerous. Um, the reason why, I think, is because in research, people are always trying to help help you and they could obviously read the vibe that we wanted this to work and they were trying to be very helpful um and uh, i think you need to be a bit more cynical than that um so we got some things wrong we we got uh, i think we underinvested in the launch marketing to break into this market costs a lot of money to the newspaper market and you know it's the old saying isn't it spending enough money to go halfway across the atlantic is not much use uh, it's a lot of money but it's uh, it hasn't worked but 
the learnings from it which are vital to our future and was one of the reasons why we tried it is that um, we cut down the processes of producing a newspaper radically. So we had journalist editors who were responsible for a page each. So essentially, we produced a very high quality national newspaper with about 35 people instead of, you know, I think The Sun still has multiple hundreds of people producing its paper. So what we proved is that you can short circuit some of the processes in producing a paper, which is learnings we've been able to apply successfully to the mirror and to the people and to our regional titles, such that despite 10% decline in circulation, despite 15% decline in print advertising, as a group, we've managed to hold our profitability because the way we've taken costs out is partly in taking out processes that are perhaps no longer necessary. So New Day was a failure in and of itself, but the process of trying it gave us incredibly important and valuable learnings for the future. So, um, you know, I've made so many mistakes, but you do learn from them unquestionably. I think the trick is never to kid yourself that it wasn't your fault <laughs> and to say, you know, the consumer was stupid or the market was stupid or whatever. You know, you've made a mistake, but hell, you tried. And as long as you then get valuable learnings out of it, then that's always worth doing. I mean, you don't want to make mistakes repeatedly, but we're all going to make them. I bet even somebody as successful as you has made the odd mistake, Paul. <laughs> God, every, as every day, every day. If you don't, you know, if you don't, I agree one hundred percent with what you say. If you don't try something, who knows? You'll never know it. I mean, for me, if I was to think about one particular, um, it's I would go a long way back. Actually, I would go back um, seventeen, eighteen years. Dot com bubble, nineteen ninety nine, two thousand. We all made a lot of mistakes in those days. Um, and for me, so I was the CEO at um, Virgin Money then, um, and we had this what was at the time a crazy idea that instead of just providing Virgin branded products like savings accounts and credit cards, we would help a customer go to an uh, internet site and compare all these different products and uh, let them choose the best one. And so we developed a whole, we got a bit of money from, you know, from Richard Branson and our investors and started developing the concept. And this was such a new concept. Customers didn't really get, get what we were talking about when we were talking about comparing savings accounts or credit cards or mortgages. And it's one of those where I deep down felt that it has to be the right thing to do. But we probably persevered with it for about 18 months or so. You know, spent a lot of money, and then you know the I remember the ultimate board meeting with me. Sort of, okay, yeah, we should just forget it and go back to doing Virgin branded credit cards and and um, and loans and the like. And I think it was within about six months that Money Supermarket just took off, <laughs> and then Compare the Market went crazy, and then you know Go Compare and all of these sites we all now call the aggregator sites, which controls so much of the financial services sector have been enormous runaway successes. And um, so I don't know whether we were too early or too late or not bold enough, but it was an enormous mistake for us to give up, give up too soon. Partly it's the luck of the draw, isn't it? Yeah. And it is, I do, you know, not trusting the research too much. I mean, it's, of course, data is vital. You know, one of the favourite phrases I have as an ex-physicist and mathematician is, you know, in, in God we trust, everyone else brings data. We have to have data. Yeah. But sometimes there's you've got to trust your own sort of intuition and um, yeah, I'm, I'm, ways. I think, you know, quantitative data is just invaluable. 
uh, the research I'm talking about is more that qualitative stuff where you get human interaction and and you can learn so much um, from good research. But I always remember my my strategy partner said, I think the most interesting thing I'd ever heard about uh, qualitative research, he said, thing you must do is not listen to what people say, listen to what they don't say, but also listen to how they say things, not what they're saying. Because typically they're trying to help you, but you've got to look at the body language, you've got to look at, at, at um, you know, what they omit to say and you learn more from that from what people actually tell you and uh, that's a rare skill to be able to read those and I think again where both our industries are are going you know we're going to have access to mass data I mean you've got five million customers we're reaching 20 million adults a month Um, we don't know much about them but we are going to learn more and more as time goes on Um, assuming that they give us you know permission to learn more and more about them um, and that data is incredibly valuable, and you can use it to improve people's lives, to help them, you know, manage their finances better. In your case, and in our case, give them access to things that we know will interest them. Yeah, help them be informed, and you know, help them uh, get a better quality of life. Ultimately, yeah, they're all for. Anyway, Paul, I've thoroughly enjoyed our chat. We've had loads of chats over the last three years, but they, they tend to be focused more on specific Pride of Britain and events and so on. And actually talking to you and hearing you talk broadly about TSB uh, is, uh, has been really fascinating, genuinely fascinating. And, you know, congratulations, actually, on what you've achieved so far. You and your team have done a fantastic job so far. I think this is actually the first time I've heard you actually talk a lot about Trinity Mirror and your business and it's a fascinating business going through such immense change so it's been great to catch up so I look forward to seeing you again soon we'll see you soon thanks for joining us on the dog and bone please subscribe to the podcast and if you have any questions or suggestions do get in touch via our website dogandbone.dog or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog 